0: Philippians chapter 2 verses 19 to 30, page 1180. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you too, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, they say of the Swiss, you know, precise and
1: polite and punctual. And they say of the Germans, ordered and serious and industrious. And of the Italians, spontaneous, social, and sunny, and of the French. Well, actually, I was thinking about (laughs) national characteristics a a few years back, and I happened to pass a, a group of French friends here in St. Helens. They were sitting just down there, actually, and it was lunchtime, and I paused at their table. You know, what would the French say to describe the English? We'd rather not talk about that over lunch. So I guess all of us can pinpoint specific traits of particular groups of people. And our subject over the last weeks has been the defining characteristics of the people of God. Paul uses the language of the mind or the soul. The two words are virtually interchangeable in this letter. And we've defined the mind, and the Bible speaks of the mind, not so much of something purely intellectual, but rather what we are on the inside, So the mind in New Testament language, it's how we see ourselves, what we think constitutes a worthwhile goal in life, what shapes our major decisions and lifestyle behaviors. That's the mind, what we are on the inside, what drives us, you might say. And the image Paul's been using through this central part of the letter, it runs from chapter one, verse 27, through to the beginning of chapter four, is that of citizenship. And In chapter 1, verse 27, he says effectively, only let your citizenly conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And this citizenship, like with any citizenship, it's both, if you like, an individual thing. And so Paul says, work out your own salvation. That's each one individually. But it's it's also a joint thing, a corporate thing. We are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the public truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've been thinking to add in a few more metaphors, uh, uh, like each player in the rugby scrum or every member of a Roman shield wall or a team on a city M&A Team looking to take over mergers and acquisitions, or or, or maybe, you know, a school with every teacher working together, or a hospital unit with everybody trying to save the life of a patient. And two weeks ago, we were shown the mindset of the chief citizen of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, from that remarkable passage, chapter 2, verse 5, through to 11. And remember, he says, Have this mind, there's that word again, have this mind among you which is, not which should be, but which actually is already. So there's been a supernatural work in every single Christian believer such that the mind of Christ has been, if you like, implanted within every single one of us. And Paul says, now with this new citizenship, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain it, who, since he was in the very form of God, he didn't consider equality a thing of God with God, a thing to be, you might say, exploited for his own benefit. But he made himself nothing, became a slave, and therefore God highly exalted him. And verse 9 there in that piece is of chapter 2 is very striking. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Because, you see, since Jesus has behaved, since he is God, since he's behaved and shown to us precisely what God is like, therefore God has exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every other name. And it's as if God has got a display cabinet. I don't know if you've ever worked in an organization that has a display cabinet where all the kind of trophies and triumphs of that organization are put on display. Maybe, you know, you're a Manchester City supporter and, you know, there are going to be, well, who knows, maybe all three of those great cups in the display cabinet. This is us, Manchester City. I worked in a, a regiment once where we had all our battle trophies. This is who we are on display in the cabinet. Why, it's as if God were to have a DNA test. I know you couldn't do it and so forth, but imagine God were to have a DNA test and every cell of every part of every organ would be marked with what has been shown to us in the person of the chief citizen, Jesus Christ. Selfless sacrificial service is the very DNA of God. And therefore, God has put it on display. He's given Jesus the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and recognize this glorious reality of power exercised in selfless service. It's worth pausing, isn't it, for a moment to think about that, that what we're part of is so glorious, and what we've been given is such an act of grace. People worry about power a lot, don't they, in today's world. But you know, there is such a thing as good power, beautiful power, and it's been shown to us in Jesus Christ. And it is the very DNA of the creator of the universe. So have this mind. If you're a citizen of heaven, then this is the very stuff of our citizenship. I I meant to bring in my passport, I left it behind. But you know, here is my passport, and here it is showing that I'm a British citizen. You have your passport, I don't know where you're a citizen of, but every single Christian person where we have our, if you like, our passport and we've been given the mind of Christ, this is what we are on the inside. And this is what God values. And it's beautiful. And the whole of our culture admires it. Actually, think of the coronation, selfless service. We think it's a beautiful thing. And it's in the very lifeblood of God himself. Well, Paul has then gone on to say, well, work out your citizenship. He actually says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. No, we've been given our salvation. We're now to work it out. And what he does now in today's reading, right in the very heart of the letter, is he gives us two examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And it's an unusual passage because normally when Paul talks about his co-workers and fellow servants, he sticks it at the end of the letter. You look at any letter of Paul's, and it'll finish, and he'll say, you know, so-and-so sends his Greek thing, and Aristarchus, he he thinks you're wonderful, and by the way, I've got um, somebody else here with me, and they say hello as well. And that's made some people say, well, Paul's got in a bit of a muddle here. or Or maybe actually Paul finished the letter here, and then some later person tacked a little bit on further on. And even some one writer puts it like this. It's obvious that when Paul wrote these words, the words of our reading, he hadn't the slightest intention of adding further long paragraphs of warning and exhortation. I think we can do slightly better than that. In fact, I was speaking uh, at at a, running a seminar on preaching many years ago now, and we'd given each participant a little passage to speak on, to do a kind of model talk so that we can then nicely and kindly Critique it. And one individual had this passage. We were in Latvia. He was the brightest and the best of the young preachers there, actually. But he said, I would never preach on this in church on a Sunday. Well, actually, I didn't laugh. I, I mean, I've read, I gave him a very, very hard time. But I, you can see it's an extraordinary thing to say until you realize what's going on here. But quite deliberately, Paul has broken the mold of a normal letter. And right at the centerpiece of the center of the letter, I would argue that this is the very hinge of the whole letter, he's put these two individuals. Why? Oh, because example is so big in Philippians. He's very concerned about example. And he wants to see Timothy and Epaphroditus, two exhibits, if you like, of the mind of Christ. And he wants us to copy them. I hope, therefore, to send to him just as soon as I see how things go with me. Now, you can see Paul's commendation of Timothy there, can't you, in verse 20? I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That phrase, genuine concern, it's the sincere, and it's actually a word meaning anxious, who's seriously anxious about you. So here is Timothy, and Timothy is with Paul in Rome, and Timothy actually became a Christian quite a few years earlier, probably when he was as young as 16, in a place called Lystra in Turkey. He had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, but Timothy very quickly determined, he made the decision that he's going to travel with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. He's really concerned for the faith of the gospel. And so he decided he was going to strive side by side with Paul and probably made his first journey with Paul in his early 20s. But now Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And day by day, he and Timothy would meet. But there was just one thing on Timothy's mind. Whenever Timothy came to see Paul, you know, how's so-and-so doing? Have you heard from somebody else? Do you know what's going on over there? He's preoccupied. It's not a casual thing. It's not a put-on, a pretend. It's a genuine, sincere thing. And he's really concerned for fellow Christians, the Philippians, each time they meet up. And verse 21 helps to qualify the point that Paul is making and ties it in with what we've been learning about the mindset of the heavenly citizen. So verse 20, I have no one like him. Literally, I have no one like-souled or like-minded But now look at verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, this is really interesting because back in chapter 2, right at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, have the same mind, being of one mind. And now he says, well, I have no one like-minded on a par with Timothy. And then back in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now we have Timothy, and Paul says, well, look, I have nobody like him, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul is very careful, actually, the way he writes. He doesn't say we shouldn't have any concerns about food and housing and employment and family and so forth but we are to be concerned for the interests of others. And here is Timothy, and he has the mind of Christ. He's a citizen of heaven. And the chief citizen's concerns are in Timothy's head. And so he's preoccupied with the work of the Lord Jesus and the advance of the faith of the gospel. And he's an example for us of a heavenly mindset. You can imagine Paul casting around in his mind's eye about the people he might send to the Philippians. Well, I could send Frank, but you know, to be honest, all he's interested in is improving his golf handicap. Oh, I could send Francesca, but all she's worried about is whether the accommodation is going to be good enough. I could send Simone, but really she's just Really occupied all the time with her relationship status or her social life. I could send Simon, but all he seems to be bothered with is his end of year review. Now, if your name is Simon or Simone or Francesca or Frank, honestly, I wasn't thinking of you, so please don't immediately crawl under your chair. But do you see, then he comes to Timothy. Well, he's the man. I can be generally confident with him. He'll do the work. I've nobody, nobody like him. They seek their own interests but he's genuinely concerned for your welfare, the faith of the gospel. So a little word on example in this letter. Just have a look at chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then chapter 4, verse 9, over the page, Chapter 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so I wonder who, if I may ask this question, it's rather impertinent really, but if you were to have a role model, who is that role model? Who is the example you're looking to follow? We're looking to follow. Well, Timothy would be a good person, wouldn't it? Someone who has the mind of Christ. Someone who is genuinely concerned for the interests of the saints. Somebody who is authentic and is not just seeking their own interests, but is looking to the interests of others. me speak very directly, if I may, and I, I trust there'll be a number of people who've taken out of London for the bank holiday weekend and who are not sitting on the beach sipping sangria, and if you are, well... It's probably going to rain in a minute, so (laughs) I hope you're tuned in and listening. But, you know, because of the kind of church we are with the sort of demographic we have, well, there'll be many kind of Timothys, if you like, with Christian leadership, Bible teaching gifts amongst us. Timothy's a standout figure across the whole of the New Testament. He's Paul's go-to man. He could be trusted. And I can think of any number of people who've been raised up from this congregation who've taken Timothy as their great example and have looked for the faith of the gospel with the mindset of Christ, putting the interests of Christian believers before their own across the whole world. And when you think of the character and the gifts and the strengths of Timothy, Isn't it striking that he chose to devote all his energies to the faith of the gospel? Do you know, Timothy was quite a guy. If you trace him across uh, the New Testament, he didn't just decide age sort of in his teens, really, to give himself to Bible teaching and the growth of Christians across the the world. Uh, He went on. When Paul had a problem in any church, the most difficult of all churches was Corinth, Paul sent Timothy. And when Paul planted a church and wanted to leave somebody in charge, oh, Timothy was the man. When, When there was trouble in another church and the elders needed sorting out, well, who was the guy he went to? Timothy. So Timothy, well, he could have been a CEO. He could have set up his own company and made a mint. He could have been and was a leader of extraordinary note. He could have stood for election. If they had elections, he could have become a headmaster. He would have been a senior partner. But because of his gospel mindset and his concern for others and the faith of the gospel, from a very young age, he gave himself to the proclamation of the gospel. Do you know, I was speaking on this passage just an hour ago, uh, and in front of me were a whole, I mean, probably about 10 teenagers. And I said to them, do you know, Timothy was 16 when he became a Christian, round about. And, and very early on, he determined that he was going to give himself to the proclamation of the gospel. Do you know, you could be doing that right now. And their parents, you know, you could see the blood draining from their faces. Actually, I hope they were really excited because to be a gospel teacher is the most honorable thing you can do in this whole world. It's the best use of the time you could ever ever give and I'm hoping that a number of them determined right there and then this is what they're going to give themselves to and I hope one or two of you might be determining right now do you know this is what I'm going to do I'm going to be a Timothy he's going to be my role model I'm not going to look to my own interests and even when I'm 50 60 I'm going to be determining right what's the best thing to do for the faith of the gospel because I've got the mind of Christ and that's what God honors and he's put it on display having raised Jesus and given the name that is above every name. That's what counts. That's what matters. And somebody says, you know, well, I'm not a Timothy. And, you know, to be honest, not all of us will be. There are different paths for us to follow. Not all of us have the leadership gifts or the Bible teaching gifts of a Timothy. So what does the mind of Christ look like for us? Well, Epaphroditus is our man. Or you might like to call him Epaphroditus. We had a Greek lady here and she would always call him Epaphroditus. And apparently that's what we're supposed to call him. But hey, I can't quite get into the habit of doing that. So Epaphroditus, we're going to call him. And he's described so well, isn't he? With just seven words, which I think help us to get a real glimpse of the man, Paul, as well as Epaphroditus. Do you see verse 25? I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus or Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my needs. So brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister. If Timothy is as a son with a father, Epaphroditus is a fellow recruit, a co-worker, a sibling. How flat Paul's hierarchy is. Does he have one even? There's Jesus and brothers and sisters. There's no pompous self-promotion with Paul. He's right alongside his fellow workers. And how striking it is that Paul understands the Christian life and mindset to be one of battle and hard labor. If you're going to choose a a word for a Christian, uh, a Christian, would you choose that word? The word is labor. It's thinking of a building site and the word is soldier. And I wonder if we see ourselves, if we have the mind of Christ, as laborers on a building site or soldiers in a battle or siblings alongside the great apostle Paul. I wondered actually whether we should all sign on and go and work on a building site for a week or two just to give us a sense of what gospel work is meant to feel like. Hard manual labor. And I wondered perhaps if we should have a military boot camp for a few months and join it so that we get a sense of what it looks like to be a Christian worker with a mindset of Christ, a laborer and a soldier. And a brother. This is no life on the Lilo, laid back religion. This is no spiritual shades on, shorts out, cocktails mixed, Kool Aid fixed. But Epaphroditus was your messenger and the minister to my needs. And you'll see that he nearly died for the sake of the gospel. Just have a look at verse 26 following. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he merely died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That is the delivery of the gift. So what we've got here is we've got Paul in prison in Rome. We've got the church in Philippi. It's about 800 miles away. Uh, the church in Philippi want to support Paul. They had, You only were able to eat if people sent you the money for food. They had no sort of prison stuff like we do uh, today. You had to have your relatives visit you and the The guys in Philippi heard about Paul in prison in Rome, so they arranged a collection. Who's going to take the money? There's no automatic banks transfer or anything like that, no Zoom calls or FaceTime. Who's going to do it? Epaphroditus' hand goes straight up. He decides he'll go. The distance is around 800 miles, land and sea, danger from the elements, danger from bandits, danger from ill health, and Epaphroditus gets seriously sick. And his sickness was so bad he was near to the point of death. But he had the money for Paul. And the gospel was at stake. And so rather trog off home with you know long COVID or whatever it is he happened to have, he says, Well, I've got to complete this for the faith, for the sake of the gospel. And so he completes the journey. He nearly died. For the work of Christ now how would you write verse 30 imagine there's you you're the apostle Paul that'll take quite a stretch of the imagination for some us. you're sitting in your prison cell and you're thinking you're going to write this letter uh, that Epaphroditus I guess is going to take back with him and so forth and there you are you're writing it what how would you write verse 30 well when Epaphroditus comes you know he's a bit intense you know keep an eye on him he can go slightly over the top Uh, Oh, make sure Epaphro doesn't overdo it, won't you? He's prone to being a bit overzealous. Don't want him to get burnout, do we? Verse 29, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Honor him, for he nearly died. That's an honorable thing to do, to nearly die for gospel work. I was studying this with a group of bankers. They were all board members in their banks. I don't mean they were bored of being members of the bank. I mean they were very senior and they were on the board of the bank. And one guy at the end of it said, Wait, "We'd studied Timothy and we got to Paraditus and we were studying away." He said, "Oh, this is such a relief," and I couldn't think what he was talking about. And he said, Do "You know, I really can't preach to save my life." Well, he was absolutely right on that. And. Uh, And he said, I just wouldn't have the patience to lead a church. And he was quite true. That's absolutely right also. But then he said, here's Epaphroditus. And he's just a gospel gopher. Now, I used that word at the four o'clock congregation and somebody didn't have a clue what a gospel gopher would be. They thought it was a gospel golfer. So let me explain. A gopher is a small animal that runs around, runs around, runs around. And it's used as language for somebody who kind of is really busy doing odd jobs and errands and all the rest of it. Well, here is Epaphroditus. He puts his hand up. And he's prepared to put everything on hold. And you might say, well, he's a bit intense, a bit over the top. Well, hang on. No, Paul says, honor such men. He puts the gospel first. He has the mind of Christ. He is concerned for the advance of the gospel. Now, I'm loath to give specific further examples, but it seems to me that the apostle has put both of these individuals in place for us so that we can say, okay, what's it going to look like for me to have the mind of Christ? I can think of any number of people. There was somebody leading the prayers here this morning who is a lawyer. He's decided to go down to four days work a week. He gets paid far more than he deserves, obviously, and therefore he can take one day off a week. He's managed to fix it up like that so that he can be involved in any number of works in gospel ministry. Many of you won't be quite at the stage of your um, life, work, and so forth that you can do. I think of another person who was a doctor, now, doctors, I know you're having trouble with pay and all the rest of it, but you know, he reckoned that he could do his GP work, take three days' salary, and then be part-time and only work three days a week and live off what he was being paid. And he gave the rest of his time to gospel ministry. Think of other people who've okay, stuck in the workplace, earned shed loads and given most of it away. And other people who just sweated away doing whatever job it is, not being paid very much at all, but using their spare time to do gospel ministry, like Epaphroditus. Somebody with accountancy skills, using their accountancy skills to help in in, in, any number of Christian organizations. Somebody with programming and computer skills. I mean, somebody just working away just now to make sure the people who are sitting on the beach can hear this talk with the internet because it was down. Somebody with legal prowess. Somebody with catering skills, determining to actually set aside their whole work and come and work in a church so they can cater and feed people, DIY, whatever it happens to be. But do you see the principle? How am I going to give my life to gospel ministry in such a way that actually I could even serve to the point of near death? I was getting on a train in Plymouth down in the West Country, and it was 5 o'clock, something like that, changed platforms, got on the London train. There sitting in the corner was somebody I thought I recognised. I don't normally do this because it's a bit embarrassing if you get it wrong, but I went up to this girl and said, do you know, I think I recognise you. She said, yeah, I come to St. Helens. You're William Taylor. I said, yeah, I am, actually. That's nice of you to point that out. <laughs> and, uh, and how come you're on a train in Plymouth at 5 o'clock on a, on a, on a Saturday evening? On a Saturday evening, oh, well, I popped down to see my parents. I'm leading in Sunday school tomorrow, and so I'm on the train to be back to do Christian service. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditer, actually. It was a girl. uh. (laughs) What do we say of the Swiss? Precise, punctual, polite. What do we say of the Germans? Ordered, serious, industrious. What do we say of the Italians? All sorts of things. Spontaneous, social, sunny. What do we say of the English? I'd rather not talk about that over lunch. What do we say of citizens of heaven? Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own end. There's one other mindset example. Did you notice him? His mind affects his feelings, the apostle Paul. I wish we had time to go back over Verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, "Even if I' am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am literally, I'm full of joy and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be full of joy and rejoice with me." And then verse 19, "I want to be cheered by news of you." And then verse 25 and 26. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. I'm so desperate to see you. And verse 27 and 28 God had mercy on him, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm all the more eager to send him that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And verse 29 Receive him in the Lord with all joy. Joy and cheerfulness of the soul, and more joy and genuine delight in the well being of Christians. It's the very mindset of Christ, such that. Paul can even say, if my life is poured out to death, I rejoice over it. Because that's the mindset of heaven, giving ourselves selflessly in service for the faith of the gospel. And so the final thing to say is, a comment on Christian experience on true Christian joy and on cheerfulness in the Lord. Where does true Christian joy come from? Well, it comes from the mind of Christ. It comes from grasping that selfless sacrifice is what is really valued in heaven. It comes from immersing yourself in the work of the gospel. And you sometimes find a Christian Saying all my joy has gone, I don't feel very happy in the Lord. Uh, life is just joyless. One of the questions we need to be asking is, Has your mind the mind of Christ? True Christian joy, selfless service. More on that next week. Let's pray together. Though he or since. Jesus was in the form of God. He didn't count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Thank you, our Father, that you have exalted Jesus, given him the name above every name. Thank you that your very essence is selfless and sacrificial service. And true greatness can be seen in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would form the mind of Christ in every single one of us and that we would find true joy and delight
0: and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.